This is a Stand Up Labs production, powered by digital media. Saying once for Barbara Streisand, it's a true story, and her eyes crossed the other way. It was just the first thing I do is make him toast myself. From the writer of Nyeh and the director of Nyeh comes Nyeh. You can have an eight way suck fest up in your room, but you can't walk barefoot to the casino. I want a lemon twitter, I want a raspberry puff, I want a honey curl, and a, a, a no, two chocolate, no, one, one, put them back, put them back. I can loosen up. Don't have to be so black all the time. I hate when my foot falls asleep during the day because that means it's going to be up all night. My neck is actually six inches long, completely flaccid. It don't matter about how much you sniff, put it away, sniff the interest. We're going to have to buy more stuff! Oh my God, very excited. You know, I've been trying to get him in for a long time, but because he is in six movies and has a special on uh, Netflix and he's traveling the world with his new tour. I'm so lucky to be able to have this next comedian, one of the most prolific comedians I've ever seen, someone I respect with all my heart, someone I've traveled with, worked with to get him on Letterman a bunch of times and uh, so happy that he uh, is coming in today. I know you're going to love it as much as I will. Ladies and gentlemen, Jim Gaffigan. Hey, Jim. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Jim Gaffigan's here with me today. Uh, welcome to uh, The Break, I call it. And the, the Break. Yeah. Uh, you know, you always have to have a name for something. The and, Break. And I was it's funny because I was looking at some of the specials you've done and the albums you've done. And, of course, they all have to have names, titles. Right. But now your tours have titles. Yes. Like this one is the where you're going Noble all over. Noble Ape. And what's Noble Ape? It's just a name I came up with, you know, just because uh, I think all men are apes and maybe I'm noble. You're one of the noble apes. Well, maybe, you know, compared to some of them. Yeah, I understand. You know what's interesting? Last night I had a dream that we did this podcast already. Oh, that's very... And, and here's were the thing, we naked? And completely. Well, yes. we each had one sock on. There you and, go. No, um, but what was interesting, it was really fun, which was good. But when it was, oh, oh, it ended because the cassette player just stopped. And it was, we looked at it, and the batteries had run out. So uh, when we played it back, it was like, because oh, the yeah. tape was slow. So we were a little bit bummed out, but we went into the other room, and Dave Letterman was in the other room. And he was like 40 years old, but he had the yeah. same beard he has now, but it was brown because he was younger. Yeah. And you wanted to take a selfie with him. He goes, Jim, Jim, you know me. I don't take selfies. Yeah. So, I, but it was it was just very interesting because of the fact that it's like I we were gonna do the podcast and Letterman is a connection, big yeah. connection for and us. And then he was in the news. Maybe it, you knew about the New Yorker article. I didn't know about it till today. I read it in the middle of the night. The Vulture had a yeah, and it was terrific. Yeah, just him being himself and silly and great, and made me miss him even more. Yeah, yeah, I know. So you know, you you relate to him because you're an Indiana person. Yeah, I think that, you know, it's interesting because I think some of it is with Letterman growing up in Indiana and seeing someone on television. I mean, I think before I got Letterman, I I saw John Mellencamp on SNL. 
Ah. And I was like, oh my gosh, that guy's from Indiana and he got out. <laughs> and so, but Letterman, I think, you know, Letterman, you know, there's the Indiana thing, but I think he had an influence on uh, comedic sensibility for a generation. I think he and uh, Bill Murray, and I think even, you know, we look at late night television, it's, you know, as things have changed in our. By the way, you know, Jimmy Fallon, you know, it's like I like Jimmy, but he's doing something completely different. And he's not a broadcaster like well, Letterman was or Yeah, but there's also like a sensibility thing, like that sardonic nihilism that I think Kimmel comes close, but it's Letterman it was absent of smarmy. Mm-hmm. In, in my opinion. But and Kimmel's hero was is Letterman. Yeah. So that's why I think they're the closest. And, of course, everybody takes a while to get great at what they do. Yeah. And Kimmel, I think, has really grown into being an incredible interviewer like Letterman was. What about Carson for you, a Midwestern guy? I mean, I think watching Carson, I think when I was a kid, I was just like, this is boring. Yeah. Interesting. But I think I I had – because you don't know what you're watching. You know what I mean? It's – you know, when you go on as a guest on different shows, like I wish I would go on Letterman now. And why is that? Um, just because I think I would know, you know, it. I wish I, I would know. I think I knew, I know now more of what would make it fun. But I also think mm. that when, you know, and I'm talking about paneling on Letterman, I think there was a fatigue in the last, 10 years he did the show that there were sparks of him enjoying it but like I feel like when I was on the show and you know I, this is nothing negative against him I mean he did it 30 years 33, right yeah there was a little bit of like when I was on the show I felt like he was looking at me like just go just mm. just do this do you and, think some of it was in your head some of that uh, as yeah well? and I think but I also think that um there's yeah, I mean, I think some of it was in my head, and I think some of it was he was also uh, the most non-robotic person. He cared so much about every part of every show. So so when he, when the first guest would be, you know, say some actor or actress that just had nothing to say, yeah, I think that would affect his mood for the rest of the show. Of course. And um, and I think as a comedian, you know that, like, just because you do well in a set doesn't mean that you enjoy it. Like, I find it interesting. I'll get off stage and doing a show, and my wife will be like, what would you think? And I'm like, I didn't, I didn't like it. Mm-hmm. And she'll be like, they loved you. And I'm like, it's, it's a different conversation. Right, because I get that, for. too. And, you know, I've been doing it, you know, in a row for 33 plus years, yeah. and I still love it like yeah. crazy. But I get off stage every once in a while, and I'll just go, "No, that just." And people go, "Are you kidding me? You were this? You were ad libbed? You played it? Yeah. yeah, but I didn't. You don't understand. I didn't feel happy. Right. I wasn't it's, uh, thrilled. You know, it's I, I got to go conversation. back." I know. Well, you're you grew up closer to Chicago than you did yeah. Indianapolis. Yeah. But it didn't matter because you're Indi- an Indiana person. I'm talking well, about some the of it influences. Is, oh yeah. Well, some of it is about, and maybe this has changed, but how Indiana was perceived in the Midwest. I mean, when I was growing mm. up, Michigan was a cool state. This is before 
the the collapse complete collapse right, of, of Detroit. Detroit. Obviously when I was a kid and Flint they and were losing jobs and stuff like that. But Michigan was a wealthy state. Chicago and Illinois Chicago was the capital of the Midwest. And then Wisconsin was kind of like uh, you know, Germanic kind of European like beer. But and a fish cool fry. place. Yes. Uh, really yeah. great. But Indiana was this generic kind of place that was absence of uh, you know, an identity. So the the reality is is that most people in Chicago, I have jokes about it, like, mm. you know, when you say you're from Indiana and Chicago, people go, where's that? And you're like, it's no, 10 it's, minutes away. Yeah, turn around. There right. it is. And so it's a little bit, and we know, like, in the tri-state area, and some of it's dissipated, but, like, you know, people used to dump on Jersey. Right. You know, and you go to Boston and they dump on Maine. Mm-hmm. So Indiana was that place that people would dump on in the yeah. tri-state area of the Midwest. So, but it was probably, you know, I know that similarly we had big families. I'm the oldest yeah. of five. You were the youngest of six, I think, right? Yeah, yeah. And and, and the one thing about my house is my mom was hilarious. And, yeah. and I know that your dad... You know, this is, I've known this for a long time, is that your dad was a banker, yeah. and he wanted everyone to be sort of suit and tie. Yeah. What was it like in your house when you were a little kid? Was there comedy? Were there albums? Were there? Did you watch comedy shows? I mean, I, there was, I, you know, I think growing up, the influence, like my dad, you know, wasn't particularly funny. Mm. I don't think my mom was particularly funny. I think that my siblings were funny. I think my mom was a great audience. Right. And I think that my dad was a little bit of unintentionally funny. So he was a you know, it, you know, in my family it was it was also a different era. It wasn't the parental involvement. It was just kind of like you guys go to the basement, you know. <laughs> Especially when you're the sixth child. Yeah. By now, it's like there was just, just like, take Jim off my hands, please. Like there was just you know, just don't wake up your dad, <laughs> you know. And and so there was definitely. I mean, I think my siblings were very funny. Like I think I'm a combination. Do you think, or of, are you? Have yeah, you thought no, about it. Yeah, no, I think I'm a combination of my three brothers' sensibilities. Mm -hmm. I think my brother uh, Joe is very funny uh, in kind of like a classic kind of, you know, silliness sense. Like he's more like Jonathan Winters. And then Mm -hmm. my brother Mitch is more of an observational guy, but very funny. And then my brother Mike is very dark, very... Like the the thing you're not supposed to say. Right, that's who you are. All right. these you just described who you are in a sense. Yeah. So I'm a combination, of, but I don't know. You know, it's weird because I have a strange relationship with um, with Letterman. Us both being from Indiana, him being a significant comedy influence. But I also think, I mean, I don't know if you you know have ever thought about this. It's like. Are these comedy influences what worked for articles 15 years ago? Right. Do you know what well, I'm saying? I thought about that. You know what was interesting? Let, one time in the audience, someone said to Letterman in the pre-show, said, who's your favorite comedian? Without skipping a beat, he said, Jonathan Winters. Oh, really? And all of a sudden, I was like, that makes so much sense. Yeah. So, you know, back then, Jonathan Winters was on Jack Parr all the time. Yeah. He was on Dean Martin. He was on yeah. all these shows that Letterman was growing up watching. Yeah. So it was, it really made a difference in his life. Uh, you yeah. know, some kids would have Bob Newhart's album and play that nonstop. And that's why I was asking about your house. 
I, you know, I could see now that your brothers. How about your sisters? You had a couple. Sisters, you, you know, I mean, I wouldn't say particularly funny. I mean, but not unfunny. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't the currency. Like the currency mm. of being funny was how I gained favor with my older brothers. I got you. Well, you know. that makes sense. Were they parental in a way to you? I think, well, my sister uh, was, and, you know, like, I kind of have an Irish twin, so we were Uh. more or less, you know, the same outfit and all that stuff. (laughs) And, um, but, you know, yeah, but it's weird. There, there's, so there were funny people in my family, like, the joke is third funniest in my family. (laughs) And you still play show or whatever it is, win place. And I always say, but I have more comedy specials than that, (laughs) That, you know. As a result. Yeah. Because you had to work harder to try to get into first place in your family. And I think it was very rare. Like, the, you know, things have changed. Uh, You know, the entertainment industry is, maybe it's, maybe that's less of it, but, like, it's more accessible. But more importantly, I think the occupation of a stand-up comedian is wildly different from when I started. Yes. You know, and like you look at like when Seinfeld started or Letterman when he went to LA, it's dramatically different. I mean, it's now much more of uh, you know, uh college educated, in fact, you know, a little Ivy League kind of educated type well, there, of There performer. was that that there you know, Harvard had the lampoon yeah. and Dick Cabot went to Yale. And you know a lot of the the best comedians that I've always loved always ended up being the smart guys. Yeah. And even though Letterman I mean, Richard went to, Klein went to I mean um, Robert Klein Robert Klein went he to went Yale to Yale too. as well. That's true. And you know even though Dave went to Ball State he was he's one of the smartest people I've ever worked around. The most thirsty for knowledge. So I've always found the comedians to be that way. I think today's comedians are are very smart and really yeah. clever. But now there's more of the. There's stuff we never had, like Twitter and how many followers do you have, and yeah. can you fill a theater because you have created an audience, and there, of course, the internet, which is blown yeah. up for comedians. So I think that's different. But you know, I, I look at a guy like Tommy Jonigan, for instance, yeah. and he's brilliant as he would yeah. have done well in the '60s, '70s, '80s, and yeah. all the way through. But you know what? I do think there is a difference in that things are like. There, there's a segmentation that has happened in in comedy, and maybe it's because as it it used to be this niche art form, and now it's like music, where mm-hmm. there's country music, there's reggae, there's all these things. Right. But it used to be you had to make everyone laugh. So, like to get to you know, Letterman was everyone loved Letterman, everyone loved. Seinfeld. Everyone loved Chris Rock. Everyone loved George Carlin. And when I say everyone, I mean eight out of ten people. Right. And now it seems as though it's far more like being um, embraced by a greater majority of the populace is... Look at Netflix. You see there are 30, 40 specials. but But my point is it's not... The um, is like I'm looking at a, a an album of, of Steve Martin and Richard Pryor. It's like right. those guys were the best. They weren't kind of like you know twenty uh, percent people think Steve Martin's just just the people that read the New Yorker. Right. You know, it was like everybody, 
And I, and there was this shift, and I think it was almost kind of like after the Dane Cook explosion. Yeah, and then Louis C.K. sort of followed it, and you kind of did a similar thing where you put a, uh, a, a one of your albums out and or specials. Yeah, you did yeah. a special, and you said five dollars, like Louis yeah. did, and so that that helped you. In a I sense. think you know it's it's all timing and. But look at look at know. the time you say everyone like prior. But there was the, or say David Steinberg or the Smothers Brothers. But there was a time when Nixon was there, and most of the elites or the yeah. you know the suits and ties they hated them because they que- they made them question their existence, and it's that still goes on today, don't you? Agree? Yeah, I think it's. I don't know. I think it's. We live in darker times. We do. We do I mean, live in I darker times. But I think we fit in to the darker times because I think comedians have that darkness. Yeah, but I yeah no, I think we're fine. <laughs> yeah, I'm just saying that, you know, we have a reality television star, right? And like there, there wasn't this divide between uh, people that watch Real Housewives and people that listen to Fresh Air. Yeah, and and I think that instead of those remaining niches, they they. They grew into monsters. And by the mm. way, you know, I listen to Fresh Air. I don't have anything, you know, reality shows are not for me, but I'm an actor, so I'm not really drawn to them. Right. Plus, a writer, and writers lose out because of a show. Yeah. Like that. And I think that, like, it's, I mean, it's not going to remain like that. It'll change, but I don't know. But We're comedy's have could gone in, you know, different. Like, you know, in the 60s, it was a certain thing, and then yeah. it went down. The 90s, it was big, and every. TV network had their own special, yeah. and then that went away, and no one was going to clubs, and then all of a sudden people were going to clubs again. Yeah, I think it's it, it does oh, run no, in this cycles. Is, this is the I think this we're living in a peak. I Interesting. mean, the fact that people are, I mean, there's probably thirty comedians that are doing theaters. That's insane. Yeah, that is insane. That is insane. It used to just be three: George Carlin, right, Carlin, and Cosby. Cosby and uh, and even prior, you know, he was a little. It was yeah. an older time, yeah. But you know, and Steve Martin. When I was in college, and you know, I'm just about seven years older than you. Yeah. <clears throat> when I was in college, I got to the offer to wa- go and be an usher so I can see the free Steve Martin concert. Yeah. I saw five performances, and I said, "This guy's the greatest ad libber I've ever seen in my life." And then after five shows, I realized, no, this guy's the most brilliant performer who makes it look like. He's making this stuff up on the spot. And it was one of the first comedy concerts. You know, I had gone with my parents to see a a comedian or like in the Catskills or Corbett Monica or, you know, those Malzy Lawrence guys. But uh, there was an era of it was only a few people doing concerts. Robert Klein, the first, it was another guy who got the first HBO special. And uh, HBO has still stayed where there's very, very few comedians who get big specials on HBO. So there's also that top shelf, and you know you've grown into that person. But I believe that you've grown into that person because you're you work really, really hard at it. I've watched you, yeah. you know, all the time. You, you know, when we first had met when we were younger, you know, I we didn't know each other very well, and uh, 
you know, but I, it's, as a com- comedy, you know, junkie, I watched your stuff and I thought, even at a young, as a young comic, you started in the early 90s, I yeah, remember. Yeah. And I thought, wow, this guy's great. And then the first time we met, I don't know if you met, remember this, but you got mad at me. We were at the comic strip and I had to go, I was working a TV spot out. Yeah. And you were just about to go on and they said, Eddie, you go on before Gaffigan. And you were like, I want to go on now. I'm ready to go on now. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I understand, you know, and I said, go, go ahead, go do your, your spot. And I came off and we didn't really talk, you know, it was kind of like, I was like, yeah. who's this guy and why is he so angry? Yeah. Uh, and uh, I've heard you talk to other people in other interviews yeah. and stuff like that. And you said there was a time at the beginning when you were just really uptight about that kind of stuff, because eventually you were the guy who would come into a comedy club and want to go on stage and work out yeah. material. You became that guy as well. Well, I think that, I mean, there's no excuse for um, the anger that I had. But I think that, you know, stand-up comedy, there was... See, there's see you're like, you're from like this era before. Right. That, like, when I started, there was, you had, you know, it was after the boom. Mm-hmm. So I started, you know, when I think... You know, I used to say, you know, it would have been, made more sense to go into phonograph repair. <laughs> and and there where was, would have that gotten you? <laughs> so there, there was people that had, um, the, that had kind of a, you know, had spots and they had mm-hmm. stage time. And then there was also, I was, you know, like many generations I was behind this generation of like what I think is the best generation. Mm. And when I say generation, I mean like every five years there's a new. Right. And that generation was Dave Attell, Louis C.K., Todd Berry, Kevin Brennan. You know, just like these powerhouses of just really good comedians. So I literally couldn't get stage time. Like Greg Giraldo and I would drive to Long Island. We would drive to Connecticut just to get on stage. And so I think some of it was me mismanaging my time, but there was this level of frustration. Like like stage time was such a rare commodity and just like you you know you know like some of the just the you know like the the egos and the thievery of right, some of these and the people. The thugs. The thugs that like it sounds like we're exaggerating. Like it sounds like when we say you would win a contest and they wouldn't pay you. Right. It sounds made up. Or when you would say, like, someone had an audition for Montreal and, like, the person that owned this club would not let that person go on until they signed a contract where they would be their Exclusive. client. Yeah. And, and that's there, a, that should be illegal, that kind it, of thing. It obviously yeah. was illegal. <laughs> yeah. But it was such, you know, stand-up was such a kind of, and so, like, there were also people in management and uh, management of clubs that were really, I mean, there was no norm. So, like, there were mentally unstable people yes. running clubs that would either, you know, the, you know, Lucian, I mean, God bless him, but he would literally persecute people yes. for no real reason. He got a joy in that. Yeah, and then Al Al Martin, and, you know, like, these people evolve, and, you know... Well, Louis uh, Ferranda as yeah. well at the beginning. He yeah. was, 
you know, double booking people and not paying attention and yeah. creating more drama. And so, like, Louis Ferrando was somebody who I look back and I go, well, he at least under had some level of taste. The rest of them were, you know, like, they, it wasn't that different from a really shitty road gig. Yeah, you're Where right. you get there and they're like, all right, you're going on while the TVs are on. You're like, it's, it <laughs> yeah. doesn't need to be that way, but they would just do it because they could exert authority over someone. And the beauty for me was I got to work places like Cobbs in San Francisco, yeah. and the clubs where the owners, you know, like Denver Comedy Works, yeah. uh, Austin Cap City Limits, the, where the owners were so loved comedy so much. Right. That I got to get great stage time. So were those exist? I mean, I know Comps was existing Comps existed in the 90s. that uh, during the nineties. I, I did Cap City later. Late. Yeah, uh, but still, you know, when I just even if I go visit a friend and I go by yeah. there because that room just reeks, you know, yeah. intelligence and well, the DC Improv's exception was one of the greatest ever. And yeah. and it was, but so it's. But there were, uh, you know, yeah. the point is, is there were so many. Uh, hurdles to get over but that's what made you a better comic i'm sure because you had to go to connecticut you had to go to new jersey and but you were willing to do it where yeah. there you know 90 percent of the people weren't willing to do it i mean it was there were definitely times when i was thinking um you know insanity is repeatedly doing something and expecting a mm -hmm. different result and so there was moments when i was like this is just insane yeah. you know and and some of it was, I remember I would, I mean, Greg Giraldo would help me get stage time in Long Island because yeah. he was like a Queens guy. Right, and they all respected him. And he, and, was, and he um, was, again, another hard worker. Him and I, I went to Connecticut yeah. with him to do gigs, and I took yeah. him with me because yeah. I just knew that he was brilliant right away. I, one thing I have always had, because I started in the 70s in college, and is yeah. we've always, I've always been surrounded by great comedians, and the Boston scene was great. Yeah. Stephen Wright and I went to school together, and everyone really, and there was mentors and people taking yeah. care of each other. There was no, like, you suck, get out of here, unless you were a thief. But, you know, then along the way, I wanted to do that, and I would take people like, you know, Brian Regan at that time or, wow. you know, and yeah. bring them with me on road gigs. And uh, Gaffigan, I mean, Gaffigan, you're Gaffigan, uh, Geraldo uh, would do that for you. He would help you and, yeah, uh, you know, and also, you know, one thing I had, we, you and I had talked about this years ago about Attell was one of the, your like mentors, was a guy well, that... Well, yeah, I think Attell was saying, uh, you know, thinking that I was funny was the best credit I had for yeah. the first seven years I did stand up. Because there was, there was also, I mean, here we are in Stand Up New York. I mean, it's really interesting. Like, Stand Up New York was the preeminent club for a couple of years. Yeah. And, I mean, preeminent means, I mean, I'm also Before somebody, eminent. No. <laughs> you know, I'm also somebody that doesn't believe in that hierarchy. I mean, what's amazing about Stand Up Comedy is it is of the entertainment industry. It's one of the few that is based on meritocracy. So, yes. like... Tommy Jonigan can be from a small town in Illinois, but he is so funny, it doesn't matter. So, like, even some rich kid, it's like Tommy Jonigan's still going to do better than them. Right. And so there is, you know, like, it's weird to, like, how it shifts and moves and... And, uh, you know, it'll shift and move again, but... Right, but with the help of... You know, I was lucky to have people like Kinnison and Schimmel, and yeah. it sounds like a name-dropping people, but those are people who reached out, 
got me when I got off stage and said, you're very funny and how can I help you and let's go have dinner and this kind of stuff. Yeah. How was a tell like that for you? Well, I think it was, I mean, the irony is is that Dave is a little uh, skittish, but... Uh, very humble, though. Very Incredibly humble. humble. But, you know, there was also... I think that, again, we're talking about this generation mm -hmm. uh, before me and Geraldo and Judah and Bonnie. Right. And those guys were so good. But I think that the people that they were competing for spots with, like, there was still that shit-eating mentality. So there was this emotional... And, and the New York sensibility was very much let the material do with the work. Don't sell it. It was, you know, you should be able to do the joke. People should like the joke more than they should like you. That's mm. that's what I can say. And a tell, yeah, I would see and a tell in that and way. And Louis like that. I mean, Louis. And Letterman, much that's more. what Letterman liked. Yeah, he loved you, uh, you know, Jake Johansson and Brian Regan the most because the material was the best material, and it yeah. was quirky. And he always that was his style. Yeah, and he liked that. So. The, the the fact that we were in New York during that time yeah. was really great for all of you. Because uh, I think also like the showcase environment of New York City leads to that. Mm -hmm. It just strips things out, and you have to be more and more um, eccentric. It's interesting because like, mm. do you think like when you started stand up, would you rather have started then or when I started or now, I started in the late, uh, really late 70s, 79, 80, 81, uh, beginning of 81, and then I quit because of horrible thuggery, bad experiences, yeah. the comedy clubs. And I would, I was in Boston, I drove down to New York to audition, and I was treated very poorly at the improv and very yeah. poorly at the comic strip. And it was just evil stuff. And yeah, and, and uh, so I quit stand up. I, I even had a sort of <coughs> weird show in Florida with Jackie Mason, he was a kind of a prick, you know, uh, I was very young at it. And uh, and so I I quit and then I started again in '84. We're running a comedy club because at the time Catch a Rising Star and Comic Strip were going on, yeah. and they were very clicky and they had their people and they were great great comics, yeah. but they didn't have the comics from Boston, San Francisco, Chicago, yeah. L.A. You know, and these were incredible towns with Paula Poundstone and Jake Johansson and yeah. all of those great comics, Kenny Rogerson. So I would bring all of these great comics in, and I had my own club. So I was I. The one thing I wished is that I never quit for those three and a half years in between, because yeah. I would have probably been in a different place. But I'm happy that I started in '84 because that era was Colin Quinn, and that era it was a very smart, smart comedy era. So I'm happy that I just wish I would have kept doing it. But I I I was happy with the '80s, the beginning of the '90s. I loved, you know, I would host shows and Louis would be on it and he was brilliant, yeah. young. But I, I liked the mid-80s. I thought that was a really, really great time. I was very lucky to be able to be there and work with the best Kevin Meany and just Liz Winstead when she started. It must have been interesting to see the uh, this fascinating art form where uh, the development of the the public's reaction to it where... It got to a point where there was such a fatigue that it became a joke on The Simpsons. Yes, you know? yes, that's a great and, point. And because and that's when I started, was when it was like a joke. 
And um, it was just, you know, the mentally ill kind of going mm. out and talking. And, and so it was, it must have been weird to see that shift because there's also, I mean, the, the heckling and the, you know, the kind of interaction from the audience, like that has the, really the education of the audience of what stand-up comedy. Right, because I was has, at a club where you went off on this one guy. Has enormously because changed. Because he was heckling you, and it, and I would see Bill Burr, uh, yeah. you know, who I think is one of the greatest comics in the world. Uh, you know, just, it's like, leave me alone. I'm trying to do my work here. Yeah. And why are you... Why do you think but you should be part of this show? there was an era, and that was Rodney. I'm helping. Mm. They think of, but like it used to be, I'm helping. Yeah. And that eventually dissipated, and and it became the uh, this kind of like, you know, it's just weird. There used to be the stable of heckler lines that you yeah. had. Right. And now I don't even know if I remember. I mean, now I'm kind of <laughs> more skilled at probably dealing with it, hopefully, but- it's Robert Schimmel didn't handle heckling. Brian Regan never, he couldn't handle heckling. Not that he couldn't, he didn't want to. Right. But here's where it changed for me. In 1989, I went to London yeah. to go visit Dennis Leary's baby was born prematurely. So while I was there, I went over to the comedy store in London, and it was it game changer for me because the crowds were brilliant, and there's a history there of you know hundreds and hundreds of years of storytelling. And, yeah. And the crowds were uh, a living organism. They were part of the show. It wasn't heckling like you suck. It, yeah. was, he it was heckling like here. I, it, the audience was as good. Uh, they were part of the show. They were yeah. part of that rhythm. And then it made me realize when I came back to the United States, the there was so much pandering done by American comedians. We would go, hey, give yourselves a round of applause for coming out tonight. Yeah. Getting applause for no reason whatsoever. Um, uh, let's hear it for the troops. Give them a nice, you know, yeah. all this applause that the American uh, comedians were asking for. Um, and when you they would go to the crowd, it was kind of cheap. And when the hecklers would come back, it was kind of cheap. And it drove me back to Europe all the time because that was, it was richer. It was deeper. And now yeah. coming back to America, when someone would heckle, I was the king at quieting them down. Yeah. And then here's another thing in that same thing is I got to work with Paula Poundstone in San Francisco in the late 80s, and uh, and she's the best I've ever seen with handling, she turns hecklers around, as they're their, she's, they're their best friend by the end of the show. Yeah. So I think, I don't know if that's the same category you're talking about, but I know that that kind of cheapness is a give and take, both from comedians pandering and audiences doing what they think they're supposed to do. Yeah, but I think it's, it's, it's evolved. I mean, because people are, you know, they, they understand what the particip participation is. I mean... Do I'm, you get heckled in theaters ever? No. No. I mean, people will yell out a joke that they want to hear occasionally. Right. But the rest of the crowd will be like, really? Yeah. Because there is some of... Uh, you know, it's an expectation. Like, when I first started... I, I just did 10 years at this theater in Milwaukee every, every New Year's Eve. Mm-hmm. And and it was great. And I remember when I first, you know, started dating my wife, she was from Milwaukee and we went and visited there and we hung out with her friends. And her friends were like, yeah, it's so fun to go to a comedy club and heckle. And I remember thinking, that's so odd. But 
that was the culture there. I mean, mm-hmm. there wasn't a comedy club there, and now Milwaukee's like. Well, the comedy cafe has been around forever. And now, see, I never did that. It's a shame because I, I actually did two New Year's there, one with yeah. uh, Rich Hall, one with Daryl Hammond, and the crowds were amazing. Yeah. And the ownership really cared, and they were bikers, and you yeah. weren't going to heckle because if you did, you're out on your ass. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. See, that's then that's totally just, you know, one story that doesn't line up. Yeah, because the, you know the clubs, with the clubs who really cared, not only to to care about the crowds and make sure they were treated right, yeah. and which is so important that the music that was playing when people came in was good and upbeat, yeah. but they really nurtured local comedians. Yeah, Denver Comedy Works. Uh, you know, Wendy Curtis, She, when you're working a weekend at that club, she puts on three to four comics that are local on the weekend to open yeah. up and do 10 minutes each instead of one comic doing 30. Yeah. And these comics get to work with some of the greatest comics bring who bring the best audiences, and in yeah. turn, they, they get to grow. So I think that there are still pockets of incredibleness that goes on. And and the point, bringing it back to what I was going to... I started about asking about a tell, yeah. is that... The, the thing that I think that's most important, I, the two most prolific comics I've known in my life are you and Attell. I've never seen anyone work harder. I've never seen anyone dedicate themselves. I see you right before you go on stage with your, at the time, your Walkman or your yeah, iPhone yeah. with your headphones and notes. And, yeah. you know, that discipline didn't, how did that, how did that eventually happen for you? I think that was a result of, uh, um, you know, I just think things are harder for me. I think mm. that it's... Interesting. You know, I think some people go on stage and they do a set and they remember a note that they made on stage. But I think that I go on stage and I'll improvise here and there and I won't remember. So sometimes I won't be able to listen to my set for you know, a week, and then I'll listen to it, and I'm like, oh my gosh, there was like a gem in there mm. that I know I felt on stage, <laughs> but mm. I step off stage, maybe it's because I got so many kids and I go right back into it, but mm. I'll forget. I'll forget like perfect language of something, but I always think that... Um, I've asked audiences, the Saturday night I yeah. did a show, and it was the most fun I've had in a long time. And I ad-libbed my ass off, and there was one ad-lib that I loved. And I told some guy, and I said, remember that, please, and see me at the end of the show. And he remembered it, and it was great. It was like, thank you. Right, cause, but I think some performers remember those things. Yeah. I think some of them remember it. And, you know, it's interesting because this year, you know, I'm going on tour, and I have this new hour and i don't know if it's my sixth or seventh hour and um i remember i taped this special in late september or october and mm-hmm. i remember saying to my manager because my manager and agent were there like well you know we could do dates in like uh february we could do and i'm like i'm not gonna have any material i right, won't have right any, i can't do that to people i can't and so then I was resistant. I was like, I can't, I can't, you know, I got to deliver. And by the way, I, in the past when I've, I, I at least have 45 minutes of like the hour and 10 minutes that's new. Gotcha. And so I was like, I can't do that. And so there was this panic that overcame me. So then I had shows in November and December. And Is this I, previous before 
that you're talking about a previous shows November or later the later scheduled? that after okay. after I did the special so like I had October November December so I was like I got to come up with material right and so now here we are in early March and it's all new and it's like I've never I never thought that that would be the case like I've changed jokes and I've thrown stuff out and right. stuff like that but I've never done come up with a new hour in three months. But how do you counterbalance that? Now you're doing, this year you have six films that are coming out. You have new Netflix special. You're doing an international tour. Yeah. You know, I, I have you ever been to China before? I know you're going to China. I, you know, yeah. I like Ten it. years ago. I mean, yeah. it was, it's just essentially performing for, for the Brits. Pats. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. But it's fantastic. And it's yeah. so beautiful in the history. Yeah. yeah. But you're, well, the point is you're doing an international tour. You're doing films. Yeah. You're writing. You're doing commercials. And you still have to write stand-up. I guess you compartmentalize. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, you know, the films, the, all those films coming out, it's that's just coincidence. Like, some of them are from 2016. Some right. of them are from the end of 2015. Some of them larger parts, some of them smaller parts. And this Chuck Wepner thing looks like a pretty good Oh, film. yeah, that's that was fun. Your play is like his best friend or something. Yeah, and yeah. so it's like, but e even doing those, it's as opposed to doing a TV show, working on a movie, I'm not working every single day. And by the way, coming off of two years where my wife and I wrote all these episodes of this TV show, right. having that burden lifted and like being able to sit down... And, you know, I've been doing stand-up for over 25 years. I right. should be able to, when I focus on it, be able to do that. But it was interesting because I was very scared because, like, after, mm -hmm. like, my fourth hour, I was like, all right, I don't know if there's any more food to talk about. <laughs> or, and then, But you've always been had food stuff. I've always had food stuff, mm -hmm. but this new hour, there's no food. And but Because you had a book about food as well, didn't yeah. you? So, yeah, you've got that. Okay. And so it's, it's interesting. But you know, as a comedian, there's self-appointed challenges. Like you sit there and you go, all right, I'm going to tell some stories. And so I'm telling some stories in this hour, like two in particular, that... You know, it's interesting. I mean, no one's better than like Chappelle at this, That's but right. like, and he got it right away. He didn't. He even, got it. He, no, it, he, he just he walked out and told the truth, and yeah. then I was like, okay. And it's just, and so it's really fun, but it's a different as opposed to an observational. Like, here's a topic. I'm gonna think of every single joke on my point of view on this. Right. It's a story. Is I did one in Cinco that was like probably five minutes long, and. And goes the new Netflix special. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's fun, but I mean, I don't know. You know, in the end, I mean, the movies. It's fun doing that. We I, were in a movie. Remember, Thirty Years to Life. I think we were the only two white people in that film. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, did that? Yeah. All right. So that was ninety five, I think. Or but not, it's no, like these, you know. But like, I know I was working at Letterman, the, so it was the movies are not going to change your life. You know what I mean? It's like, look, I grew up loving. The idea of being an actor, I would love to be an actor, but I'm not going to hold my breath. And now, as a comedian, I mean, Chris Rock is paid $20 million <laughs> for a special. I'm not getting close to that, but that, you know, their stand-up is moving up to where, I mean, look, I enjoy acting, but it's the process of but getting you, the acting You job. started acting, but... 
Uh, and I started acting. I started yeah. improv and sketch yeah. at the beginning. And but a stand up to me, I you know I have this job. I've had this job since '84 where I book comedians. Yeah. As a matter of fact, you're one of the. I've booked you more than any other comic oh, wow. in things because remember we did that show, me, you, and Tom Cotter for ESPN's 25th anniversary. Oh yeah. Anytime no. anything came up, you were money in the bank. You you know it. It was always really great. So I've always booked comics, and it's interesting because comics look at me as a booker. And people treat me a little differently. But to me, I'm just a comedian who happens to... Uh, the reason why I booked in the beginning was so I can get work myself. It was the way to get yeah. stage time. And it's it's interesting how people treat diff- you know me a little differently than just like comic to comic. Now that I'm just mostly a comedian, I just booked the Johnny Carson thing once yeah. a year. Um, it's kind of fun for me because now I can actually write. I, I was looking at thousands of videotapes and yeah. links of other comics i couldn't i had no and i had to work with comics every week yeah. to get them ready yeah. for tv so let's go to that the television the first yeah. time you did letterman i was just a warm-up comic there was like yeah. 99 2000 something yeah. like that yeah. that was your dream always to be yes. on the letterman show it never well, was carson because you said that wasn't that was uh, that i mean it, carson yeah i mean i would have loved to have but like letterman was the one that identified that had the influence on me and right. i think that also i mean people don't remember like that was there was the hbo special and the hbo young comedians thing right but that wasn't the the mantle of being anointed on beyond uh, the pale was before that too wasn't it uh, was no. it before that? No, no, no. Okay. It was after that. All right, and it was, but like doing Letterman was, or the Tonight Show under Johnny, that was, you know, there was a time when it was, it would transform someone's career, but it was also, it was a, um, it was a stamp of approval. Right. And by the way, you know what I think the stamp of the of approval is now? I think it's comedians and cars. Yeah. Isn't that, you know, it's, it's such a great, incredible and, show. And, and so it's. But Jerry, I think Jerry thinks of me as a booker and not a stand up. You know, a lot of times there are shows that I, you know, know that I'd be fun on and, yeah. and, and funny, but a lot of these people look at me as a booker. So I, I've, you know, worked so hard in the last year or so yeah. to just be back as a stand up. And hopefully these people go, like, I didn't do your your TV show, not that I'm complaining. There's a million yeah. comedians and stuff, but again, I think you think of me as a booker or something. No, no, it wasn't that. I mean, the, the problem... I'm not looking for the gig or the anything. The problem <laughs> when I was doing my TV show is that everyone who... Uh, a lot of people that we know are 50 and older. Right. And so if you're portraying comedians, you can't have them all be like 50-year-old Which is old weird guys. because, you know, I've never been better as a comedian, and I think yeah. probably all of us, when you get older, like Lewis Black oh, absolutely. is in his 60s, and he's the best, but because he's had this history of exposure on television, he's oh, it's okay to put him on in his 60s. Plus he has full head of hair, and he's yeah, you know in, yeah. de- in decent shape. But it's interesting how there's that sort of ageism kind of a thing where... Yeah. Even well, at Letterman, they would tell me, you know, find us younger comedians, please. Because right. I'd put Klein on or I'd put Roseanne Barr. And they were like, they're great, but, you know, what about the 20-year-old? Well, the 20-year-old, most of them except for Chappelle, isn't ready yeah. to explode. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. And you see that. Like, you'll see a clip of someone on a TV show, like whether it be Conan or something, and you'll be like, you know what? They're funny, but they're not ready. Well, if you look at all of the sitcoms, I mean, 90 
eight percent. I'm going to make yeah. up a number of sitcoms that were successful that lasted more than one year with a comedian in the lead, Roseanne, Tim Allen, Seinfeld. All of them have been doing comedy for 12 years. Even yeah. Anthony Clark, who was a great stand-up, he did Boston Common when he hadn't done, you know, he'd only been doing comedy for six years, and it didn't wow. last. Then he had been doing it 12 years, and he got Yes, Dear, and then it was successful. Uh, Royal Watkins, who's a very funny comedian and brilliant, he had a show on TV, and it didn't last more than a year because... I think comedians need 10, 12 years experience. I was talking to Brett Butler, who had a big yeah. sitcom, and she said, yeah, if I would have done it earlier, I wouldn't have had the guts to stand up for myself yep. in these kind of situations. Yeah. So you did Letterman in 1999, and did you get Welcome to New York right away from yeah. that first appearance, yeah, right? Yeah, from that first appearance. And so here you are playing an Indiana weatherman. Yes, so what's that like? You know, you do Letterman. It's it's fantastic. It's your first time ever. Yeah. The dream come true. And yeah. then he says, I like that guy, and I'm going to sign him. Zoe Friedman found yeah. you and put you on. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was you know, afterwards it was um, uh, Rob Burnett, who was very much um, like, look, we want to do this. It was all a blur, mm -hmm. you know, because it was like one of those things where I was, uh, you know, I was so prepared for doing the show and i think i was the last one of my generation to do a late night show like except for geraldo no geraldo had done letterman uh, i had conan. no oh he done conan many but times. he hadn't done letterman yet but he finally did it but he had done anyway. conan many times right and it was so it was conan and letterman like conan was you should be able to get conan at that point but yeah. i couldn't and i ended up getting conan and letterman on the same night, like there was an audition wow. for Letterman and an audition for Conan at two separate clubs. And so I did the show, and then uh, they're like, he wants to meet you. Uh, not Rob Burnett wants to meet you, and I'm like, all right. And so <laughs> then he brought right. that up, and it was uh, pretty surreal. Because, you know, I... Um, you know, there was no scenario. And by the way, even looking back on Welcome to New York, and you talk about, like, having the guts to stand up for yourself. I don't think I had the guts to stand up for myself. I also don't think I had um, the right, you know, some of it, there's so many elements. So by the time I got to the Jim Gaffigan show, mm -hmm. I was like, yeah, Jeannie and I are doing this all. And people were like, well, you know, we think, and I'm like, no. no. How many years you have to do had you, you've been doing stand-up seven years when you got Welcome to New York? Right? Is that it? Seven, I think eight years? Seven, eight, yeah. Right. I don't know. And then Ellen came after that. Yeah. And did you learn, take anything from Welcome to New York and bring that to Ellen with a more knowledge, or you were just a player? So I was just a player on that. But I mean, it was really interesting to see the uh, absolute control that Ellen had. Because mm -hmm. I remember. Think you know, like my experience doing TV shows was Welcome to New York, where I played a character named Jim Gaffigan, <laughs> and I could, I'd have to pitch lines for what my character would say, <laughs> and they'd say, I don't think he would say that, no what? Way, but I, I am Jim him. Gaffigan. And so then I went to Ellen, where I didn't really have much to do, and I saw her have complete control, and then I did some stuff on that 70s show where I learned that I didn't want to do a four-camera show. Mm. And then I did the show My Boys, and right, I realized right. I have to, like, I have to have some influence on what's going on. I mean, I liked everyone on My Boys, but it was very much, 
like people 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 in the entertainment industry i think a good portion of them just want to say they're in the entertainment industry mm -hmm. that's all their ego needs right. like there's not an artistic creative fulfillment that they're pursuing which to me seems insane right and that's why I, I said earlier that when i look up to comedians or when i talk to young comedians i always use you and atel as the people to look up to who put the work in look at it as an art form they don't overthink it they just do the work yeah yeah and I mean, part of the work is to stand up for yourself and to say this is how i'm the comedian i see it this way you're yeah. a pr person and i appreciate the work you're yeah. doing but you can't tell me what my strength is yeah and you know it's i i also think some of it's timing you know i mean look i the beyond the pale what year was that do you remember that was 2005 because that was huge for you that was the that hot was pockets and, and by the way that was one of those things where that's when genie and i took control of when we were shooting that special we were uh -huh. like like there was someone kind of like doing stuff and we're like no 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 we're doing it like this and like you know, makeup and stuff like that. But I got that, which was an hour special, which was good timing because there was. I remember I was, you know, my half hour special on Comedy Central mm -hmm. had some success, and but they didn't book me again for another half hour. It was just some of it. It's timing. Yeah. So they and were very, like, very few people were doing hours. Yeah. Right? No one. Yeah. I mean, just I the blue anyone. collar. Guys. Right. Right. And, and they were your management anyway. And so, and so, not the guys, but the, yeah, but like my manager was with those people right. for like a short period, and that's how I got it. But like the um, because Comedy Central didn't give me a half hour, like I think Geraldo did three of them, and I remember yeah. going, I can't <laughs> get a second half hour, and they were like, No, we don't need it because this one's getting ratings, and I was like so frustrated. But it doesn't make any sense. I remember I got one in two thousand three, my half hour, and I'm like, How come I these people are getting it, and I've been doing it this long, and yeah, and you know, and then I see it and I hate it anyway because I'm such a bad person. But you had this hour coming out, so and so then I you because took control. I didn't get the half hour. I got the hour, and because that hour landed when people still watched Comedy Central. Yeah. College students used to watch Comedy Central. There was comedy on it. It was just, it was the only thing in the dorm room. Yeah. And um, so, like, that was, that's where timing was very beneficial to me. Yeah, and, you know, it, it was interesting because we did a tour, and we only ended up doing two dates with yeah. you, of the late sh comics of Late Show, me, yeah. you, and Jake Johansson, which were two of the most fun gigs I've ever yeah, had. Yeah, we did Vancouver and where? We did Vancouver and Aurora, Illinois. The first one was Aurora. Oh, wow. It was a theater in Aurora, and that's when we first did it. And that's when Jake surprised. We got a little bit. Uh, we had a little bit of a, dr a drink on. Yeah. And Jake comes back with hot pockets, and in the middle of the night, we're like, Ah, hot pockets, because you. I guess that yeah. was big for you and we're eating and they go well, yeah that's really isn't that delicious and yeah i remember that and then we had to replace you because all of a sudden now you shot up and we're doing your own specials at this time and uh and so we brought wendy liebman on board and then eventually you know Dwayne kennedy and uh, nick DiPaolo and other yeah. people to take your place but two of the best shows i've ever been on where i wanted to watch the whole show when I wasn't on stage, I was in the front row watching you, then Jake, and it was the other way around. I mean, talk about prolific. I mean, how many hours has Jake Johansson done? 40, 50, I think. He's done the most ever uh, Letterman he spots. 
and he's one of the smartest comics I know, and he's not famous famous, which is odd because he's not only prolific, but hilarious. Yeah. And even Letterman, you know, he just, he adored him, and it was, you know, he... They tried to do things with him, but he's still at it. He's still traveling the world. He's still yeah. brilliant. I did a corporate show with him during one of the Super Bowls, and he was just ad-libbing just brilliance. And, and yeah. again, I, I don't know why some people do well in the acting world or get their yeah. own thing. Again, it's, it could be timing. One of the questions I always wanted to ask you uh, is – I know you've talked about politics and religion are always those things yeah. where people say, a first date, don't talk about politics yeah. and religion. I believe you should yeah. to find out. And you've touched on religion. I know there's yeah. a sort of casual Catholicism in your background. But do you ever touch politics? Is it ever a thing for you? Uh, religion, how much do you go there? I mean, I, I, you know, it's interesting in this era that we live in now, because I sit there and I've had discussions with people where I'm like, is it going to come to a point where we have to discuss it? And um, and Letterman said in an interview, yeah. he said that of course we have to discuss it. But I think that's his sense. But that's but it's also what's right for him. You know right. what I mean? So I mean, he's also this guy who, you know, after nine eleven, there was. You know, this is the therapy session with him mm -hmm. because he was authentic. And right. I remember that Dan Rather interview. And, and also the birth of his child. Yeah. At 57. And, and his so heart years attack, old. too. You know, very yeah, authentic. Which was, yeah. yeah, you can't fool yeah. that. So for you, and let's go back to you politics yeah. and religion. So here's my thing my thing with politics is I don't like topical, it's not worth the effort. Mm -hmm. So. Um, and that's not to say that I haven't done political jokes, just like I haven't done, uh, I, I've done dick jokes, I've done all right. of them. But I think that politics is, it's, it's not evergreen, you're not an expert on it. I'm also somebody who is, I think, rather complex. I mean, I'm a liberal person, but I'm also, um... You know, I have compassion for... I come from one of the redder states. Right. And I live on this blue island. But so when it comes to politics, um, if I can make it about humanity, even though we're in this scary world right, right now, but when it comes to religion, I do like the challenge of taking a religion joke, which is probably the oldest topic ever, mm -hmm. and making it appeal to atheists and evangelicals. And theists. That's, and, so, and so, and really that's a joke about humans. So there's going to be people that are going to be turned off because I'm talking about that topic. But, you know, it's like any comic knows this. You bring up a moment of tension. No one does it better than Bill Burr. You bring right. up a moment of tension and then you relieve it. And the windfall is enormous. It's like winning a slot machine. But... So there is something of religion jokes that I find appealing, but from a very personal perspective where there are comments on human beings. Right, and that's the essence of jokes. It's all humanity. Yeah, because atheists will use my jokes <laughs> as like proof of atheism, and then there's you know Christian organizations that use the same joke. 
Right. And if you remember, you know, you and I would go back and forth on jokes for Letterman. Yeah. I had to bring him into the producers. I was the middleman. Yeah. And I fought for comedians. I, you don't know what, I had a fight with them about Colin Quinn right after 9-11. Yeah. And he had a great joke. And the essence of the joke was, look, if you were in down at 9-11 and you were there that we all care for you. and But if you weren't, we don't want to hear your story kind of a thing. Like, like, look, if I would have taken the two train yeah. instead of the three train, I would have yeah. been down there. Well, if I wasn't working the rides at Nellie Bly, I would have been, yeah. you know, an investment banker, which was hilarious. And it was we needed that relief. It was a month after. Yeah. And the producer said, are you crazy? And I went, no, it's so perfect. It's Dave. It's what Dave would do. He would release the tension, as yeah. we talked about. And they fought me and fought me. I said, please, can I go to Dave with this? Because I would never go over there, yeah. step over them. You know, they were very smart, yeah. incredible people yeah. who ran the show so that's their job is to protect them. right yeah. and uh and i went to dave and uh, with their blessing and dave said no that's a fantastic joke so you and i would go over things and you know we would have arguments now i was like look you don't know that i went in there and fought for you but yeah. this is how they did that is it interesting now in your life where you're doing more specials where you never have to worry about that kind of uh, it network is interesting it's interesting the uh you know, because stand-up has such a, uh, you know, a history with censorship, right? But the Smothers we, Brothers went down because they let David Steinberg talk about religion. But, you know, but, I mean, as a creative person, hurdles are what, you know, it's like just a boundary that you can deal with. Like, without the boundaries, like, I think a reverence is like liberty. It's always moving. So what, you know, you look at Bill Hicks stuff, it's like some of it's like flat out homophobic. (laughs) But some of it was so, it's like the irreverence. But back then, it was perfectly irreverent. Right. And so I look at, you know. He died uh, just after you started doing stand-up. Yeah, no, I saw. So it's a different era. Yeah, yeah. I saw him uh, at Caroline's. I th- you know, supposedly it was his last performance. I well, the, that I was working with him that week. Yeah, I wonder if you were there. Yeah, I was yeah. working with him, and I had the, the, they said you have to take over for him tonight. Yeah, and I didn't know why, and then I found out why, and broke broke our hearts. But anyway, back to the thing about uh, Hicks and co- censorship, and you know, it's just I think there's this rich history of fighting censorship. Look, I'm for free speech and all that, but I also think that you know what. Bill Hicks did what you know uh, Lenny Bruce did are important, but what Steve Martin did is important. Yeah, silly. You know, Steve Martin and and Eddie Murphy. It's like you know, it's some of it is the, you know, it's the you know looking at the human condition and kind of laughing at ourselves and an observation. And you talked about an intelligence, so it's like it's not just about. Um, you know, uh, you know, questioning authority. It's questioning humanity. I la- yeah, you know I mean? that's exactly what it is. You know, I, I don't really take apart my comedy and go, I want humanity. But when I look at it, I think, okay, what's the essence? It's compassion. Yeah. And, it, it, you know, we have this big fight in our world now. It's greed versus compassion. Yeah. And there's people on both sides of the fence, and no one's giving an inch yeah. on that. But the comedian, you know, no matter how... Uh, strong they are, they have to, they do show this, they don't have to, but they show this vulnerability. That's a strength Yeah. that I think that 
all goes back to humanity. And by the way, I think it's, uh, it's, it's even more important because there's, there's an absence of dialogue today. Yes. So I think that people like Bill Burr doing what he does. Like, I mean, he has a joke. I don't know if it was in his last special where he's like, I don't want to hear from Michelle Obama. And the <laughs> audience right. goes, what? Yeah, right. <laughs> You're like, the president's wife. You're not the president. Yeah, yeah, I didn't vote for you. And it's, it's, it's almost kind of, w- that's where we're going to have the discourse <laughs> in stand-up comedy. <laughs> and, um, you know, people can be subversive in a lot of different ways. Like, there was a lot of social commentary like Steve Martin, you listen to Steve Martin, there's, uh, you know, it's not that different from Mark Twain. It's like those no. French, they got a word for everything. <laughs> it's very similar. And that is a comment on American culture similar to, I mean, Bill Hicks might be, you know, much more of an indictment of America, but like it's the same point. Yes. And Humanity but, is the foundation. Yeah. The touch. And, and before I let you go, I know you have to get out of here. Yeah. I, you know, I've asked this from everyone, and yeah. up to this point now, things are going amazingly. You have this beautiful family. Yeah. You know, I know Jeannie; she's amazing. Great photos of the kids when they were babies, and you coming over to the Letterman show. And I just have so much respect for you. Are there any regrets that you have along the way that you wish would have happened? You had asked me earlier, do yeah. you wish I was in this era or different things um, like that? I don't know. I mean, it's like I don't know if I want to change where I ended up. Um, I think that uh, it's interesting to think of, like, different opportunities I would have had. I mean, there's, you know, I wish that, you know, uh, I would have kept closer in touch with Greg Giraldo. Mm -hmm. But um, I also think that, um, you know... It's weird. People don't realize comedians, these friends, go on these emotional journeys that are like going through high school and college and first job in a four-year span of being a comedian. Um, I would say that, I don't know, I think that like I wish I would have written more. Mm-hmm. Back then, yeah. But here's the other thing: the the things happen, and because of that, other things happen. Right. And so, you know, I wish Geraldo was still around. I wish Carlin was alive. Yeah. It's been nine years, oddly enough. Yeah. Uh, eight and a half, and wish they were here. I wish Dave was on TV. I wish yeah. I would have not stopped. There's a lot of wishes, but instead of wishing that, the key yeah. is to just deal with what you have now. Yeah. And 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 dance a little bit in it, and not be you know one of the things I would just get so angry and so uptight, and you know I you know I was as a booker you know people there are people who hate you yeah. because you're not booking them, and I was so uptight, and now I realize no you know I did everything I could uh, that I could, so I don't regret it, and I've always thought you know what do other comedians feel about regret, and most people have said what you said look I I'm happy I got here because I got here yeah. when I did. And 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 do you do do your ch- are your children that are older now? I think there's one is twelve is the yeah, oldest. Yeah. Is he a fan of your comedy? She yeah. she I'm sorry. Um, because um, I met a boy when he was just born. I remember that. Uh, yeah, yeah, that photo. was Jack. You know, yeah. I probably you know I, I don't know. I <laughs> it's weird. I think that, you know, I I don't know. I would. My say son's no. a comedian. Yeah, yeah, my son's. I saw that. Yeah, it's crazy good. I'm working with him this week in Chicago, so it, that's why I asked that question. It's yeah. it, it's interesting. Do your children like what you do? I think they're. 
I mean, we've definitely had this approach of like, do whatever you want, and you have to tell kids like, just because I do this doesn't mean you have to do this. Just because right. your mom's a writer doesn't mean you have to be a writer. So, it hasn't come up, but I think there is, you know, uh, some interest in it, probably from my son. But I don't know. It's it's a it's there's nothing set in stone. There's nothing like it's not going to be you know how like. Um, you know, Bob and Dave's son. <laughs> right, you know, yeah. Bob right. and Ray. Bob and Ray. Yeah. But, you know, it must be nice when you come home, whether the set is good or not, yeah. you have these beautiful children to look at, and yeah. they're like, Daddy, Daddy, you know. Well, it's great. Uh, you know, it's it really puts it in perspective, you know, mm-hmm. and it's, you know, you know, when you start stand-up, you're like, uh, how was that set? How was that set? And mm-hmm. after, like, 20 years, you're like, what's that? <laughs> and now it's just like there's just a cleansing. Yeah, you know. Plus, having Jeannie uh, being so prolific and yeah, and your your buddy and best friend and yeah. you know and knows your sensibility and your coach and it's you know it seems like things are pretty good and I, I yeah. you know I've wanted so much to get you in here. I know you're crazy busy. I so appreciate you sure, taking the time. Sure. I've always been a big fan and uh, I respect you so much and well, and, and, and have a great day and I'll talk appreciate to you soon. It. All right, Thank pal. You. Thanks, Jim Gaffigan, ladies and gentlemen.